I grew up in Chicago as one of four boys living in a blue-collar neighborhood. My parents didn't go out for entertainment very often, but when they did, it was one of those rare times in which the four hooligans took over the house. We were trying to decide who would be king of the mountain, if you will, for that time that mom and dad were gone. The question was, who would be in charge in their absence? Oh, yes, they designated someone. Important duties needed to be done while they were gone. Like, who would wash and dry the evening meal dishes? But even more important than that, who would control the television set? And which of the four channels would we get to watch? You know the old saying, well, the cat's away, the mouse will play. This morning, we will attempt to answer a question, at least partly. How do we behave ourselves? How do we conduct ourselves when no one is watching? How do we live when there's no one around observing our lives? Are you the same person at church as you are in the workplace? Are you the same person when you're with Christians as you are when you are with unbelievers? There are many who I would call, many Christians who I would call chameleon Christians. They adapt to whatever environment that they find themselves. Situational ethics become their guide. Let me ask you, why is it we so often fail to live for the Savior? in such simple ways? Why can't we just do the things that God wants us to do? This morning, I hope to focus our attention on the subject of human responsibility in personal holiness. Human responsibility in personal holiness. Paul commands believers in the text that we will look at this morning to work out their salvation. To work out their salvation. The holiness of life that you and I are called to live is really a life of personal purity. This holiness is called by theologians sanctification. It is a, refer it is a reference to the separation of the individual from personal indwelling sin. We have been called by the gospel to practice personal holiness, practical holiness, spiritual growth, Christ-likeness, whatever label you desire to place upon it. You and I have the responsibility of living holy for Jesus Christ. In this passage this morning, though, we will notice that there is a paradox that exists between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility in that sanctification process. We will see the inconsistency between being held responsible for our holy lives and God sovereignly working in us to produce godliness. We want to look at the total picture. We want to look at the believer's role in sanctification and God's part in that process. And we will need, in doing so, to consider these things. Are we called to a life of discipline or a life of let go and let God? Is it me or is it him? Is it by faith or is it by discipline? 
Is it simply trusting Him or obeying Him? The answer to all these questions is, of course, yes. Huh? You might be saying. We're to discipline ourselves unto holiness, yet on the other hand, it is also God who works in us to make us holy. It is trusting God by faith, and it is placing our faith and obedience in Him. Unfortunately, through the years, believers have ignored this paradox, and they have leaned towards one or the other extreme. We have the quietists on one hand and the pietists on the other. But to go in either direction in the extreme is a serious mistake. If it's all up to God, you will fail carrying out your personal responsibility. If it's all up to me, then you are depending upon self-sufficiency. We need to acknowledge this conflict, this paradox, and we must do everything we can to live the balanced, the balanced Christian life. As I said, historically, there's been these two extremes between quietism and pietism. There have been the the quietists who have taught that believers should be spiritually passive. The, as I referenced, let go and let God crowd. The rational goes like this. I can't, but he can. Then there's the other extreme, the pietist. These folks that believe, believe that taking holiness is done by personal effort. The believer must be aggressive, must be active in working out all of these things in his power for the sanctified life to come into being. As I've suggested, neither of these views are correct, but they have truth in both of them. So then, what does Paul mean by work out your salvation? With that as our background, would you turn with me to the book of Philippians, the passage that Pastor Ray read for us this morning? I'd like to pick up there. Verse 12 of Philippians 2. Philippians 2. If you need to use the Pew Bible, text can be found on page 1,162. As you turn there, let me remind you of the context of this passage. Paul had just finished exhorting the Philippian believers and us as well to follow the model set forth by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had pointed to his humility in the fact that Jesus had become a servant, a bond servant. And therein lies the paradox for us to follow. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, became a lowly servant. Yet he could have demanded his rights. He could have called down all the angels to defend him as the Son of God. So the question that I posed last week from the previous 11 ver uh, verses was this. Are you ready and are you willing to give up your rights and become a servant? Well, Paul continues to build on that theme in this text. He urges us to follow the divine pattern of humility. Now, if I was to ask you this morning, to be honest, are you humble? Are you a servant? Are you following the pattern of Jesus Christ? And if we were honest, all of us would have to say that we fail, including myself, at that miserably. 
The reason for this failure to live holy lives are many and varied. But I would suggest to you most certainly it is not from a lack of knowledge. Most of us know what we are supposed to do. We just don't want to do it. We lack the self-control. What is it that you spend your time thinking about? What is it that you spend your time doing? What is it that you spend your monies upon? The tendency for us when we hear one of these types of sermons is to look around the auditorium and say, gee, you know, so-and-so needs to really heed this message. I hope they're listening. But what I'd like this morning is for each of us to really concentrate on ourselves and think of how the Lord Jesus Christ desires that we be like him. Humble servants. Well, what is the secret of holiness in the believer's life? Paul outlines that for us this morning. The secret of holiness in verses 12 through 18. Paul connects this passage with the previous 11 verses in verse 12 by beginning with the words, So then, so then. So then, my brethren, just as you have also obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. The connective phrase here, so then, can also be translated, as it is in other ver versions, as therefore or wherefore. The point of this connective is that there is a cause and effect between the humility of Christ and the changed lives that we should therefore live. The rationale is this. Just as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, was obedient to his Father, setting the example that we should live, so it is that we should live holy lives because the Son of God lived such a life. However, the truth is, as I have suggested, that many believers today live Christian lives by faking it. Oh, yes, they're right there with us. They're lip-syncing the historic Christian truths. Yes, they're right there, lockstep with us on doctrine. But since they are totally focused on self, they cannot flush out the Christian life that they're supposed to be living. Still other believers, perhaps like you, become frustrated in living for Jesus Christ. They... They try all they can. They ratchet up the self-efforts in their lives. And the more that they try to live for Jesus, the more frustrated they become. So how can I work out my salvation? How can I live for Jesus Christ godly in this present world? Well, let me tell you this. Mark it down. It takes more than self-effort to live for Jesus Christ. It takes more than self-effort to live the Christian life. Yes, part of the Christian life is pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. The old college try is certainly part of the personal works and efforts that we are to bring to the sanctification process. But sanctification is much more than personal effort. Let me put it succinctly. Practical holiness is realized in the believer's life through a blend of supernatural enablement and supernatural obedience. The Christian life, the holy life, the godly life is achieved by supernatural enablement in our life 
and supernatural obedience. Let's look at the first. If we are to ever stroll in His steps, if we are to ever emulate His example, if we are ever to mimic His model, then we must experience supernatural enablement in our lives. Did you notice in this verse how Paul recalls the Philippians' obedience to the Gospel's call? Paul compliments them by saying, you have always obeyed. Always obeyed. Salvation in Christ is the call for the believer to submission to the Lord's lordship. To Christ's lordship. You know, it's easy to get off track. It's easy to forget our calling in life, especially when no one is around to keep us accountable. Let me ask you this. Are you the same person here as you are at home? Are you the same when you're in a meeting at church as you are in a meeting at work? Or are you, as I suggested, a chameleon Christian? Is there an incongruency between who you are away from this place or a Christian environment and who you are here? What's the secret? Supernatural enablement. The Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in our life and His work in and through us. Why is it that we're so inconsistent? Paul compliments the Philippians on being obedient Obedient, always. Is that your desire this morning? Is that your pleasure? Is that what you would like to do? To be obedient always? What's the secret? The the enabling presence of the Spirit of God in our life. Walking with the Savior. Being led by the Spirit of God. And in doing so, we can implement the second portion of this secret, which is the Philippians exercise supernatural obedience in their lives as the Spirit enabled them. It doesn't matter whether Paul was with them or not. Did you notice that? Paul says, whether I'm there or gone, whether I'm with you in Philippi or I'm a thousand miles away in Rome, it doesn't matter. You always obey. We should always obey, no matter who we are with no matter where we are at, no matter what circumstances are going on in our life. We should always obey. How can we do that? We can work out our salvation. We can work out our salvation as the Spirit of God enables us and as supernatural obedience takes place in our life, we can work out our salvation. Now believe me, there's been much confusion over this statement. And let me add a little bit of haze to it. There have been many commentators who have tried to figure out what it means to work out our salvation. But let me be perfectly crystal clear this morning. This statement does not mean that you work for your salvation. But pastor, why couldn't it mean that you have to work really hard in order to please God? Work really hard to get into the kingdom because that's inconsistent with other clear scriptures. Paul's meaning cannot be that we work for our salvation. Salvation is a free gift granted to us the moment we believe. Let me share just a couple of verses with you 
if you're a skeptic here this morning. Titus 3.5 says this, God saved us. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds, not that which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Not according to the deeds, the things, the works that we do, but according to his mercy. If that's not good enough for you, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now get this. It is not the results of works. Otherwise, you could boast. That's what Paul says. It's not by works so that no one may boast. These biblical texts make it clear that salvation is free. Salvation is not something that can be bought, bargained for in any way, shape, or form, earned. The free gift of eternal life is granted to those who believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. He accomplished it all at Calvary. He paid the price. He bought us out of the marketplace of sin. He gives us eternal life based upon his works, not our own. The Bible teaches that every man, woman, or child ever born needs to exercise personal faith in the substitute. They need to trust Christ. Otherwise, damnation is the result. To believe in Jesus Christ is to experience eternal bliss, to know and to experience a relationship with the Father. But after we are saved, after we are justified, it's God's desire that we walk in holiness, in godliness, in purity, that sanctification, being separate, being made like Jesus take place in our lives. So if salvation is a free gift, what does it mean to work out your salvation? Well, the Greek verb that's used here is very helpful. It's translated in most of our texts as work out, but it also conveys the idea in the Greek of completing a task, of completing a task. So the implication is this. At the moment, we believe we are saved, but that there is a task to be finished in this life. Experiential sanctification is not something that God just grants to you like osmosis. You don't put your head down on the pillow the day that you're saved and he just grants you all the knowledge in the Bible and the ability to obey on a daily basis. It's a process that takes place. Yes, we are assured of our place in heaven. We are assured that the moment that we leave this earth, the moment that we die, the moment that we give up the spirit, we will be in the heavenlies with our Father. But in the meantime, we are to continue the process of growing more like Jesus on a daily basis. Paul writes to the Philippians that he was concerned that they continue in this process, that they continue to grow in sanctification, that they continue to become like Jesus, that they become more holy and set apart for his use. The truth is, that all believers are moving in one of two directions. Every moment of every day, you are either moving in one direction or the other. Each of us is either regressing in holiness or we are progressing in our walk with Christ. 
moving forward in the Spirit of God or going backwards in the power of the flesh. But one thing is for certain, you can never, ever stand still in the Christian life. The believer can never rest upon his rewards. Theology proper, which is the study of God, teaches us that there are three tenses to salvation in which we stand. There is the past tense of salvation, which assures the believer that he's been saved from the guilt and the penalty of sin. There is the present tense in which you and I live, which teaches that the believer is insured of being saved from the dominion and the power of sin. Then there is the future tense of salvation, which ensures that the believer will experience a complete transformation into the likeness of Christ and freedom from the presence of sin. These three states are called within theology justification, sanctification, and glorification. And in our text this morning, what Paul is talking about when he says, work out your salvation, he's speaking from a sanctification point of view. We're to separate ourselves from sin in this present state. Separate ourselves from the sin of this world. We are to be set apart for God's holy use. Did you notice how we are to do that? The enablement of the Holy Spirit? The supernatural ability to obey? This must be done, look at the text, with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now let me be very candid with you. I'm not a handy kind of guy around the house. No one is going to confuse me with being the home improvement guru. Sue does not call me Tim by mistake. When I get a home project going, I start it with much fear and trembling. Because whenever you do a project at home, you have to start with first things first. And the first thing is you have to destroy something before you can rebuild. If you're ever going to do anything at home, you must rip out the old before the new can be built. In our pursuit of holiness, the old must be discarded and destroyed before the new can take its place. That means in holy living we must discard the old man, the old way of living, and replace it with the new. While it is true that holiness begins the moment that we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, and that the holy life is facilitated by obedience to the commands of God, that can only be accomplished with much fear and trepidation. Jesus puts this process very succinctly, or as O'Reilly says, pithily, in John 17, 17, when he says this, Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. The point is that you can never grow on your own. You need the supernatural enablement of the Holy Spirit, and that supernatural obedience comes as we ingest the Word of God and we obey the principles therein. Growth occurs in our life in cooperation with God's Word. Our part in that process, our part in working out our salvation is to study, to learn, to internalize, and to obey the precious promises of the Word of God. 
God's Word is the agent of transformation in our lives as our minds are renewed. God has given us all that is necessary. He's given us everything that we need to become like Jesus Christ. He has given us His wonderful and magnificent promises in the precious, holy Word of God. We just must ingest them and allow them to change who we are, that old person to that new person, to be like Jesus. It's the job of the indwelling Spirit of God to convict us of the validity of the Word of God. Why would God do that, we might ask? What purpose would He have in that? Why does He want me to change? If salvation is a free gift, why can't He just the way that I am. Verse 13 makes it perfectly clear what his purposes are. Look with me there. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work. Now notice this. For his good pleasure. Simply put, God does it for his supernatural pleasure. God does it for his supernatural pleasure. When the divine and the human are merged together in cooperation, the result is the pleasure of God. God looks down from heaven and he sees your life changing and he says, I am well pleased. That makes me happy. I'm delighted to see what's going on in that individual's life. In one sense, we are called to work out our salvation In another sense, it is God who is accomplishing it in us. That's the mystery. That's the dichotomy. That's the paradox, if you will. We must do our part, but he must do his. We are, in essence, instructed to build upon the free gift of eternal life that God has given to us. But this can only happen when we help him do it. Again, we see both divine enablement here and human responsibility all for the wonderful purpose of bringing God joy, of bringing Him pleasure, of making Him happy. We can make God the Father happy. Eternal pleasure. He's overjoyed when we live a separated, godly life for Him. So what is it that we can do to delight God? What is it that we can do to bring Him pleasure as believers in Jesus Christ? How can we delight our Heavenly Father? Paul tells us in verses 14 and 15 when he points to the positive holiness that really pleases God. The positive holiness that really brings God pleasure. The first thing that Paul talks about is the unity of God's people. It brings God the Father pleasure when he sees his people united together. God hates disorder and conflict in his church. He hates confusion. Notice the command in verse 14. Do all things. Do all things. Not just some things. Not just a few things, but do all things without grumbling and disputing. Let me remind you that this is not a holy suggestion. 
but this is an eternal command of God. It is positive holiness that we are to live in unity. We are to be united with brothers and sisters in Christ, not divided. We only need to, we only need to remember the example of the children of Israel in the wilderness. You remember the story. As this verse says in the King James, do all things without murmuring. They couldn't do a thing without murmuring. As they walked through the wilderness, they complained about everything. Do you remember? There's not enough water. There's not enough food. So God gave them water out of a rock. God gave them food from heaven called manna. And you know what they did? They complained. Our leaders, they don't know what they're doing. Boy, I've heard that before. Who'd they have leading a Moses? The scripture says that Moses was the most humble of all men. And they complained about him. They kept it up and they kept it up. They murmured. They grumbled. They disputed. Until God just got sick and tired of it. Couldn't take it anymore. And you know what happened. They all died in the desert. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Unity brings pleasure to our Heavenly Father. He delights when His people are one in purpose. Do you remember when the children of Israel came to the banks of the Jordan? All the congregation, it says in Numbers 14, lifted up their voices and they praise God, right? You brought us here to the land that's flowing with milk and honey. Look at those grapes. They're the size of beast balls. Thank you. No, they didn't do that. Numbers 14 says, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. They cried. The people wept all night, says the text. And all the children of Israel murmured, and they complained. Grumbling, murmuring complaints. By the way, I don't know if any of that's going on around here, so don't think this is a message for somebody. This behavior can become an ingrained pattern of our lives. No matter what God does for us, no matter what God did for the children of Israel, it never seemed to be enough. We can get into that same pattern. Do all things without grumbling, without complaining, without division. Be unified. What happens when God brings some terrible thing into your life? What do we do? Thank you, Lord, for giving me this trial so that I can become more like Jesus Christ. No, we complain and we murmur. We divide with one another. Why, God? Why, why me? Why not so-and-so? I've been living for you, Lord. I've been trying my best. Why me? Do all things without grumbling. Do all things without murmuring. Here, in this text, the Apostle Paul instructs, if you want to please God, be unified. Stop murmuring. Stop griping. And obey God. Be unified. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling is Paul's command. Notice with me in verse 15. Paul states that we ought to prove ourselves to be blameless, innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights 
in the world. Positive holiness. Be unified. Don't complain. Don't grumble. And listen to this. We are to live blameless and innocent lives, being lights to a lost world. Blameless and innocent, being a light to those who are blind. We're to be unified together, marching with one purpose, seeing the lost come to Christ, seeing the saved become like Jesus. There's the story of a young man who went to a monk and said, I've sinned against God by telling slanderous things to a friend. What do I do now? Well, the monk thought about it for a moment. Then he gave him this advice. Go take all the duck's feathers and place them on on the doorstep of every house in town. Take the feathers of a duck and go place it on every doorstep of the houses in town. Well, the man was just as confused as you and I are. But he did what he was told. The next day he returned to the monk and he said, I have done what you have asked. Is there anything else I should do? And the monk said, now go back and pick up all the feathers. The young man, totally off guard, caught off guard, looked at the monk and said, I can't do that. It was windy overnight and all the feathers are blown about. And therein lies the point. Live without grumbling, without complaining, without murmuring. Live blameless and innocent in positive holiness in this life. Because if you don't, you can never pick up all the feathers. You don't know where they blow. You don't know how they affect other people. Live holy, godly, blameless, innocent lives so that Jesus Christ will be glorified. What does it mean to prove yourself to be blameless and innocent? That word blameless is really an interesting one. It doesn't mean sinless perfection, by the way. It would be like trying to pick up all the feathers blown all over town if we were to live that way. Blameless is the idea of unmixed or undiluted wine back during this time in the Middle East was called blameless. The same word was used when it talked about a pure wine. That is, it was not diluted with water, which was the common thing for table wine during this time period, was to take one part wine and mix it with two parts water. The Greeks also spoke of gold and silver as being blameless when it had not been contaminated with other metals or impurities. The person of God is to live blameless. That is, we are to not be contaminated or diluted with the things of the world. We are to live blameless in this life, separated from the world, and living totally unto God. Now, the second word that's used there, innocent, can also mean harmless. Harmless. Something that is innocent will not hurt you. It is the task of the believer in working out our salvation to be pure and undiluted and to be harmless to others, to only have the good of others in mind. Then we can be the light that God wants us to be in this world. We are to be innocent as doves, blameless as Christ, and above reproach in our character. Paul says this clearly in this text when he says, that we are to live above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We're to be lights. 
Are you being a light where God has placed you? Are you being a genuine light, not lit at church and dim in the world? Are you the same person here as you are away from here? Are you doing the job that God has left you to do, shining in a dark place, or are you burnt out? Flickering, maybe? Could it be like the Israelites, our life is filled with murmuring, complaining, and division? Break those destructive habits in your life. The enablement of the Spirit of God, the supernatural enablement of God, and as the Word of God comes to fruition in your life. Notice the result in verse 16. Holding fast the Word of life. Holding fast the Word of life so that in the day of Christ... I may have cause to glory because I did not run or toil in vain. Paul conveys the idea of successful living with two images here. The first is that of an image of an athlete who runs a marathon race and he does not do it in vain. He completes the task. The second is of a worker or an employer who toils and it's not in vain. That is, it is not spent. His work is not spent on meaningless things. The runner, the marathon runner, ran the race to win. To run in vain would be like to practice, to train hard for the Olympics for four years. Then to get into the race and at the 24 mile mark of that 26.2 mile to quit and to fail to complete the task. Or it would be like laboring, laboring to the point of exhaustion and then quitting just before you got the job done. None of us want to reach the end of our lives and realize that we've toiled in vain, that we've worked in vain, that there's no glory because we did it in our own self-efforts. The only valid test I know is measuring ourselves against the word of life. Measuring ourselves against the Word of God, measuring ourselves against God's standard. As Paul puts it here, holding forth the Word of life so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory. Well, picture two people traveling together in the darkness of night. No moon, no street lamps, just one light with them. Just one light to shine on the path. Only one fella has it if there's two people. He's got to extend that lamp so that both can see. He's got to hold forth the word of life. That's what you and I are to do as we live godly, as we live holy in this present world. We are to hold forth and extend the glory of God as demonstrated in our lives. Shine forth to a lost and a dying world by being like Jesus. Salvation is just not an insurance plan against the fires of hell. Salvation is intended for us to become more and more and more like Christ. Now as I close, look with me at verses 17 and 18 where we see this life is to be lived with joyful holiness. Joyful holiness. Joyful holiness. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, now notice, 
Paul says, I rejoice. I rejoice. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, I urge you, I urge you, rejoice in the same way. In the same way and share your joy with me. The secret of the Christian life? Continue to grow in your your walk with Christ. That can only be accomplished through the supernatural enablement of the Holy Spirit and through your own supernatural obedience. And what does it do? It produces supernatural joy in your life. Joy proceeds from our willingness to obey. Joy proceeds from our willingness to obey. Paul says, even though I'm about to die, I know this is the end of the road for me. I live my life with joy. And I share that joy with you. Please do the same. I'm sure, joy, I'm sure Paul, when he entered into heaven, those words that he heard from his heavenly Father were the ones that you and I desire to hear from the lips of our Savior. Enter into the joy. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Enter into the joy of your Lord. A truly humble man, obedient man, is the one that the Savior is looking for. A humble man will know the enablement of the Spirit. A humble man will know his desire to obey the Father, will bring the Father joy. Jesus was such a humble man. Each of us needs to examine ourselves this morning and ask, are we humble servants of our Heavenly Father? Booker T. Washington was the missionary of record out of the powwow this past week, past two weeks. Booker T. Washington was such a humble man. Although he was a renowned educator, a renowned scientist of worldwide fame, he was still a humble man. Shortly after he had taken over the presidency of Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, he was walking through an exclusive section of town when he was stopped by one of the wealthy white women of that community, not knowing or recognizing Dr. Washington by sight, she asked him if he would like to earn a few dollars by chipping or chopping some wood for her. Because he had nothing present of pressing importance for him going on at that moment, he rolled up his sleeves and he proceeded to chop the wood just as she had requested. When he finished, he carried the logs into the house and stacked them by the lady's fireplace. And a little girl who happened to be in the neighborhood recognized him and later revealed his identity to that white woman. The next morning, the embarrassed lady came to see Dr. Washington at his office at the Institute. And she apologized profusely. It's perfectly all right, it's recorded, Dr. Washington said. Occasionally, I enjoy a little manual labor. Besides, it's always a delight for me to do something for a friend. Well, she took his hand and shook it warmly, assured him that she meant no harm by her request. And not long after, she showed her admiration 
by making a large donation to the Tuskegee Institute. God humbly asks us to serve him out of gratitude for what he's done in our lives. May we be humble servants to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, because we bring joy to our Heavenly Father in doing so. Let us say it's perfectly all right, Father. We desire to serve you. Thank you for calling me your friend. Let us pray.